0: church hey do me a favor very quickly help our ushers out if there are some empty seats nearby you would you just kind of scooch in a little bit. That's a technical term, is scooch. So if you have any uh, available seats nearby, that would help our ushers get some of our uh, guests in here uh, and make as much space available for them. Uh, I am so honored to be with you this morning. We've had a great day of worship. Today is going to be special as we are preparing to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our conversation uh, in God's Word. So grab your Bibles and go with me uh, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now, that is all the way near the end. Of your New Testament, so you're going to look for uh, the book of Hebrews, and then James, first and second Peter, and then you'll find first, second, third John. Jude and Revelation. So, kind of turn to the right in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And uh, there's a lot of exciting things going on in the life and ministry of our church. I want to encourage you, if you are on Instagram, to follow us at North Campus, Prestonwood North Campus on Instagram. That's where we're able to update all things that are happening. And there are so many great things happening. I would encourage you to join us if you're a guest or curious about membership, what it means uh, to be a member here at Prestonwood uh, next Sunday for Next Step. And uh, also you've probably seen all the banners in the atrium. Uh, That are talking about uh, preparing to proclaim And I can't wait in the next several weeks Just to uh, share with you the vision that God has birthed in our hearts About what we think he is leading us to do As we continue to fulfill uh, the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ And I'm excited to be back with you this morning Sharing from God's word Grateful for my friends Jonathan Teague and Scott Turner Who preached in my absence the last couple of Sundays But today is going to be a special day And I thought it was appropriate for us in our conversation today from 1 John chapter 5 to talk a little bit about the need we might have on occasion to be reminded about our salvation. And when I say being reminded of our salvation, I don't mean because necessarily we've forgotten it, but rather that we would be a people... Unlike really any other people, see, Christians should be a people unlike any other world religion or system of belief. We can be a people who have such a confident assurance of whether or not we're in right relationship with God, and we should be. We can have a confidence knowing what has us in right standing before God, and this is something that is uniquely reserved for those who belong uh, to Christ, but sadly. Not all Christ followers feel that confidence, and therefore, much of your life can be given over to fear, can be given over to doubt, can be given over to the absence of assurance uh, because you're uncertain as to whether or not you genuinely have a salvation in Jesus Christ. Dr. Tony Evans describes this plague on the church as ADD, assurance deficit disorder. Well, what's more... In addition to those who don't know if they are saved, there are some who are uncertain as to how they can know if they are saved. And that is equally tragic. I mean, imagine being unsure if you are in a right relationship with God and then being ignorant as to how you can know for sure, one way or the other. Talk about paralyzing. I read a story this week, don't know if it's true, but I read it and thought it was good and want to share it with you, about Albert Einstein traveling Uh, years ago uh, by public train. And uh, if you know Dr. Einstein, he has a very familiar look like it's he's just a recognizable face he just has that kind of, of look a, about him and he was uh, riding on a train and the engineer was walking through uh, the, the, the car and uh, taking people's tickets and punching them uh, to validate their uh, authority to be on the the train and so uh, Dr. Einstein is waiting the engineers walking to Dr. Einstein he starts rifling through his pockets he cannot find the ticket that he's bought so panic sets in, he starts going through his pockets, now he's checking his jacket pockets, he looks in his briefcase that he brought along and he cannot find his ticket anywhere. Finally, the engineer says, Dr. Einstein, no need to continue to look, I, I know who you are. I'm sure that you bought a ticket to get on the train. And so he's like, thank you very much, young man. I just appreciate that kindness. And he says, no problem. And so he continues walking down the center aisle to collect other people's tickets and to punch them uh, as he was moving through the cabin there. He turned around and looked back, hearing a little commotion. Dr. Einstein is on the floor now he's looking under his chair he's looking under the seat he cannot seem to find this ticket anywhere and the engineer is concerned and he goes back down the aisle and he says Dr. Einstein I don't know what you're worried about but I, I know who you are there's no need for you to uh, feel nervous or to feel like you need to look for your ticket and he goes young man I also know who I am but I have no idea where it is I'm going I wonder how many of us have that Einstein kind of faith. You know what I mean? Like uh, we're not riding the car with any assurance because maybe we're uncertain as to where it is that we're going. And and as it relates to the subject of salvation, I want to say to you that this is sensitive for me. I, this resonates with me, because I, I grew up I don't know how many of you might have any background in church, but I grew up in my church youth group, feeling like this is not true, but it felt to me like almost every Wednesday night, our youth pastor or an evangelist that had come to share would say something like, "Do you know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know that you're saved?" And I'd be, a like, man, I thought I did until you asked it like that, bro. <laughs> but listen, we can know. In fact, I would tell you, the Bible says God wants us to know that we can have a no-so salvation. We can have a confident assurance. And so my hope is is that for most of us in the room who are in right relationship with God, we would leave here today with such a greater confidence of what God has done for us. And for others, maybe it would cause you to truly discover whether or not that is no-so for you. And so we titled Today's message, a know-so salvation, because you can know whether or not you are in right standing before God. You've probably had conversations with people, and you ask them a question like, do you think so? And they respond with a confident, I don't think so, I know so. Well, God wants us to to know so. Mary reminded me that when we lived in Coppell years ago as newlyweds, uh, we had a neighbor down the street and we were having one of those mailbox moments, one of those mailbox conversations and asking the question about where do you go to church and what's your relationship with God like? And, and, uh, and so inevitably the guy was like, uh, and I remember it now that, she's, now that she reminded me, the guy said, well, I, I just, I've been to just about every church. And he's like, uh, I've been sprinkled, I've been dunked, I've talked to a priest, I've talked to an imam, I've talked to a pastor, I've, I've had lunch with a minister. I'm pretty much convinced that if there is a way in which you can get to heaven, I've done that. He thinks he has all the boxes checked, but do you know what that reveals? He has no assurance at all, no certainty as to where it is that he has is going. And so, a little bit of background to what we're going to read today in First John chapter five. You should know that First, Second, and Third John all written by uh, the disciple John, one of the sons of Zebedee, spent three years. Uh, 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 walking with Jesus in his life and and ministry, and he also wrote the fourth gospel, which uh, bears his name. And if I was trying to summarize what I think thematically uh, uh, the Apostle John is is trying to uh, share with us, what he was trying to communicate to the early church in writing 1 John, I would tell you I, I think he's trying to elevate the church's understanding of both theology and lifestyle of both doctrine and practice you might say orthodoxy and orthopraxy what it is he believes that then informs how we ought to live. And there is a difference in John's stated purpose for writing the gospel of John versus his reason for writing the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he tells us as much. In fact, you don't have to go there. Just hold your place in 1st John chapter 5. But I want to share with you just so you'll see this difference that John has in his purpose in writing the letter we're going to read and see today. When he wrote the gospel that bears his name, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he gives the state purpose for recording the gospel for recording the life and the ministry of Jesus and he says this now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, in 1 John chapter 5, what we're going to read today, look with me at what his stated purpose is for giving us that letter. 1 John chapter 5, look with me at verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may, what? Know, if you mark or highlight in your Bibles, just get that one, circle it, underline it, and put an asterisk out beside it in the margin. That you may know you have eternal life. Notice the difference. John isn't writing this letter like he was his gospel, so that people may believe. He is writing this letter, to people who already do, so that they might know, so that we might have a confident assurance of what it is that we believe and to whom it is that we belong, so we might know we have eternal life. And so then, if according to verse 13, John's purpose for the church is that they have a no so salvation, then what does he say in the verses before that so that they can? I want us to read today 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to share with you what I think are some evidences or some marks in the life of a believer so that we might be a people filled with confidence in Christ. So that we might know what it is that we believe. So that we might know to whom it is that we belong. So that we might know that we have eternal life. So read with me. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse number 1. If you're there, say, I got it. Everyone who believes, underline that word, believes, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the word Christ means uh, a Messiah, it means Savior, And so the first evidence of every Christ follower is simple. It is our confession. The first evidence as to whether or not you can know that you have eternal life is who do you confess? It is what do you confess? A confession is a declaration of a belief of what you think and are convinced is true. And John writes that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Savior, Has in fact been born of God. And they can then be numbered among those who know. They have eternal life. John is writing here about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Clearly, it begins with a confession of who we believe. In other words, if a person believes in universalism or if someone wants to believe in pluralism as an additional means of salvation or as an alternative means of salvation that they are revealing, they themselves have no salvation. In fact, Jesus clears this matter up himself. I've quoted this to you many times. Thomas asked Jesus after his resurrection from the grave, when Jesus appears to the disciples again in that upper room, and he says to them, for you know the way. And Thomas is like, how do we know the way? And Jesus says, John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So listen, if Jesus said it, then Christians who confess Christ should be in agreement with it. It all starts with our confession. And there is a principle that many of us live by every single day. And that is the principle of... uh a plurality. In other words, the idea that there may in fact be more than one way to skin a cat. And I'll give you a simple understanding of this. So when I'm heading north on the Dallas tollway and heading into uh, Prosper, sometimes my app will tell me, Waze may tell me, that the best way for me to get to my house is just to head north on the tollway and to cross over 380, and then I can turn right and head east on either First Street or Prosper Trail, and that'll be an easy way for me to get home. But other times, Depending on the day and the traffic, it may tell me to turn right on 380 and head east toward McKinney, and then I can either take Preston North or Lasima, and that would be an alternative way to get home. There is more than one way to skin that cat. The danger comes for the church, and those who are a part of it is when we apply that principle to something so significant and eternal as salvation, because there is only one way. There is only one way for a person to have sins forgiven and to be in right relationship with God. And the evidence so that we might have a no-so salvation begins with our confession of Christ alone. The second evidence of every Christ follower is not only our confession, but our compassion. Read with me again in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In the second half of that verse, John goes on to say everybody who loves God will also love whoever has been born of him of God. In other words, you can't love God and not love those who belong to him. And I would go further. You cannot love God and not love those who are made in his image, right? So if you truly Have a no-so salvation. If you are truly born again, you will in fact love God, yes, but you will also love those who belong to him and are made in his image. That means two things. You will love his church and you will love his people. You will love his church, those who belong to him, and you will love his people, those who have been made in his image. So you cannot say, well, um, I I do love God, but uh, I I don't care anything about the church. That's like saying to a husband, hey, man, I think you're awesome, but your wife not so much. That doesn't go well, right? And this is also why we push back against the sins of racism and sexism and classism and abortion, because they are primarily the greatest offense against God, because they are an offense, an assault on humanity, which bears his image and likeness and therefore has an intrinsic value and dignity and worth because they have been made by him. You with me? So you can't say, well, I love God, but I don't love his church and I don't love his people who have been made in his image. It doesn't work. And in his determination to be clear on this, John answers the question as to how we can be a people who know whether or not we're being compassionate and loving others. Look at verse 2. He says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And when we obey his commandments. And if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it goes back to how Jesus answered that famous question so many years before when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, verses 35 through 40, this will be on the screen. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus answers the question by saying two things. First, love God. And he goes further and he says, and love others who are made in his image, who matter to him. And John says that compassion is an evidence. It's a mark. That you truly belong to God. It is another way in which you can know. In which you can know whether or not you have eternal life. Keep reading verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The third evidence of a Christ follower but beyond confession and compassion are commitment. I love the language that John uses here because not only does he say we can know we're saved when we obey God, but additionally he says we will have a mindset that obeying God is not a burden to us. In other words, our love for God will evidence itself in that we trust God and therefore we obey him. Here's why. Because we believe that God's love is so great that he might actually know what is perfect and best for you and me. And so we want to obey him in that. I would even contend that one of the great marks of spiritual maturity is when we move beyond believing that obedience to God is merely obligation and instead we see it as a source of our joy. Like, that's a, that's a mark of spiritual maturity is when you move beyond simply seeing your devotion your, and your uh, allegiance and your obedience to God, your submission of our will to his, right? And when we move beyond from seeing that as something we're merely obligated to to rather something that we find joy in, believing that God loves us so much that how it is he's ordered for our lives to work will actually be the best understanding of those things. John says our no-so salvation evidences itself in a person who is committed to Christ in their obedience to him. I, um, I remember growing up, the first time I ever saw a, at a friend's house, the first time I ever saw a butterfly knife. You ever seen a butterfly knife? It's like a it's like a piece of metal where the blade is inside of it, and you unlock it, and then if you know what you're doing, you swing it open real fast, and then the blade can be exposed. It's like, it just looks really cool, right? Now, if I tried to use it, for sure, I'd be wearing my wedding band on my thumb. But, right, I think sometimes we bring that butterfly knife understanding to uh, uh, things in our life, sin and, and struggles, and, uh, and there are things that God has clearly said, listen, you don't need to play with that. But because we're fascinated by it, we think that we can handle it, right? When in reality, his instruction to us is trying to save us from wounding ourselves, right? We just need to trust that his instruction is good for us. And instead, too often, we just try to play with these things that at the end of the day, God has already said are going to hurt us. There are not best For us and so an evidence of a Christ follower is when we move beyond simply obligation instead we find joy because we understand his commandments are not a burden an evidence is our commitment so confession and compassion our love for others our commitment now is our commitment gonna uh, be perfect all the time no it's in fact it's the reason why Jesus came it's the reason why Jesus came because at times we're gonna really mess it up God is going to give us instruction like, hey, don't play with that. I'm telling you, even though it looks really cool when he opens it, it's going to end up cutting something. And yet we still play with it and we end up wounding ourselves, which is the reason why Jesus came. Because you and I are not able to to live the life of perfection. Christ has done that for us. John has more. Pick it up in verses 4 and 5. He says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. If you mark in your Bible, underline that word overcomes. And this is the victory That has overcome, get that word again, the world. Our faith. What overcomes the world? Our faith. Who is the object of our faith? Our Savior. Jesus. In verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes, get that word again, the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The fourth evidence of every Christ follower is our conviction. So clearly our our confession, then our compassion, our desire to love God and love others... Then our commitment, that we, don't, do, we do not see his, uh, his commandments as burdensome. And then next, our conviction, that we understand that word overcome implies that there's a struggle. That there's going to be a struggle. And clearly, we know that a life of a devoted, genuine follower of Jesus is going to run in contradiction to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we seek conflict. It doesn't mean that we go looking for ways in which we can struggle. What it means is, church family, we cannot be surprised inevitably when it shows up. Think about the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells his church, you're going to be salt and you're going to be light. Those are distinctions from the other things around them. He says in John chapter 17 that you are going to be in the world but not of the world. That's a distinction. And so we have to understand our convictions are going to create within them because we believe God's best is for us contradictions to how the world thinks things ought to be done. And sometimes I would say those contradictions, that conflict, those struggles are going to be obvious. And other times I would tell you they're going to be subtle. So, for example, an obvious way in which a biblical conviction runs in contradiction to the world would be God's design for marriage and human sexuality. It's clear the scriptures have ordered and explained to us us how God has designed for humanity to flourish and thrive. But the culture seems to be at war with that. That's an obvious way in which we understand a contradiction based on our conviction. But a subtle difference that we might not be as aware of would be the way in which we believe in the necessity for God's people to gather together in corporate worship like we're doing right now, or the way in which we have been compelled by God to be generous toward others because God has been most generous in Christ Jesus toward us. Those are convictions that we have, but they're also in contradiction to how the world at times might tell us things should be. Like... Worship isn't that big a deal. The gathering together, the assembling of the church, not that big a deal. It doesn't matter. In fact, I would tell you this is one of the ways in which uh, COVID has changed the dynamic of things. Is that it has uh, watered down the necessity, the significance, the importance of the gathering, the assembling together of God's church. But time is going to cause us to stand upon a conviction which evidences that we can have a no-so-salvation in Jesus Christ I'll share one last evidence I think John points to so that we can know we're saved so we know we have eternal life pick it up in verse 6 we'll read all the way through 13 this is he who came by water and blood Jesus Christ not by the water only but by the water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth for there are three that testify And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And John concludes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I would tell you the last evidence of a Christ follower is their clarity. In the same way that it began with confession, it should end with a clarity of understanding of what it is that has a person in right standing before God. There can be no ambiguity about this. That if you want to be a person who has a no so salvation, then understand what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And John said there's a threefold testimony. That, that may seem a little strange to us, but it makes perfect sense when you understand what it is that it means. When he references the testimony of water, what he's talking about is the physical, sinless life of Jesus, that Jesus came as God in the flesh, in human form. He was born of a woman, and yet he lived a perfect and sinless life. And do you know what water is used for? For cleansing. And so the testimony of water is that through the sinless life of Jesus, we might be a people who reach repentance. Repentance is the idea that we recognize the way we're going and we turn from that and turn toward God instead. And when we do that, then because of the physical, sinless, perfect life of Jesus, through our repentance, we experience a spiritual cleansing, the reference of water. And we are made new. So listen, we're not a better version of ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and what? The new has come. You're not spiritual patchwork. You're brand new in Christ Jesus. That's the testimony of water, the cleansing work of God through the sinless life of Jesus Christ. And then the reference to blood, the testimony of blood. Well, this is Jesus' sacrificial death on Calvary's cross, paying the full Payment and penalty for our sin and rebellion against God. You see, in the Old Testament, over and over and over, God instituted a sacrificial system, this idea, so that all the people who loved God would understand there has to be a consequence for your rebellion. Parents know this very well. Teachers and educators know this very well. There has to be a consequence for your rebellion. And God said, the consequence for your rebellion against me is that there has to be a blood sacrifice. There has to be a a payment of death because you have rebelled against me who gave you life. And so over and over and over again, they would go to church. They would go to temple and they would bring these animals as a symbolic picture of the sacrifice that was required as the payment needed for the rebellion of all men and ultimately Jesus Christ is the spotless sinless sacrificial lamb of God and he pays the penalty once and for all listen look at me his blood was spilled so ours would not right and whoever has the son has life Why? Because Jesus chose our death. And so the blood testifies to that. The water is cleansing us, the blood is saving us, and the spirit is the testimony of God's gift to us, which lives inside of every single person who belongs to God. So if you are in Christ Jesus, do you know one of the great ways that you can know that you know that you know? Is because the Holy Spirit lives within you and he convicts us of sin so that when we fall short in our commitment, so that when we're lacking in our compassion, so that even at times when we're doubting our confession, right, the Holy Spirit lives within us and he reminds us, listen, God did for you what you could never do for yourself. So trust in him and stop trying to lean on your own good work. That's the Holy Spirit of God. That's the third testimony that evidences that you and I can have a clarity of understanding. Why? Because God has done for us something we would never be able to earn or achieve on our own. This is the gospel. This is everything that it is. And this is all that it is. And if you and I are someone who has been saved by it, then God wants us to be a people who are absolutely most confident in it. And by the way, it's the reason why John wrote the letter to the church. I just wonder like what would have compelled John because scholars are not exactly sure but they think that this particular letter was written like 30 or 40 years after the ascension of Jesus and the birth of church of the New Testament church there in Jerusalem and so 30 or 40 years is a long time so you got to believe that some of those uh, early Christians might have had reason simply because of the uh, religious blender of the day so the Judaism and the uh, paganism and and then the newfound Christianity this understanding that Christ has done uh, the the work of salvation alone and so maybe it was just the blending of all this religious confusion or, or maybe it was just the suffering of the life that these persecuted Christians uh, had had to live. But for whatever reason, 30 or 40 years after the ascension of Jesus, maybe within the church there were people at times that when the evangelist showed up to the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and said, do you know that you know that you know that you know, there's some of them who would have said, well, I thought I did till you asked it like that. And so John writes him this letter. And I think it's as relevant to us today as it was to them then. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that those of you who have believed in the Son of God may know that you can absolutely know. You can walk in a confident assurance that God has done for you what you would never be able to provide for yourself. Look with me at verses 11 through 13. He says, and this is the testimony That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now, this is the most simply stated phrase of what has a person in right relationship with God. Perhaps in the New Testament. Look at verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Connor, how can I know? Do you have the son? Do you have Jesus? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? Because whoever has the Son of God has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In verse 13, he says, and I'm writing this to you, so that those who believe in the name of the Son of God may know you have eternal life. So, at the risk of sounding a little cliche, Do you know that you know, that you know, that you know? Because God sure wants you to, right? Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. One of the saints of our church uh, went home to be with Jesus a couple of weeks ago. His name is Butch Pratt. Um, I've known Butch since God called me here in 2019. He's been a servant the entire time. He's battled health issues for about the last year, and, uh, and yet he always maintained this positive attitude, positive spirit. Uh, because Butch is a servant at heart, he just gives of himself to others, and he served our church faithfully for a long, long time. Mel Pugh officiated his funeral this Thursday, I was privileged to be a part, and Mel told the story of one of their early life groups, and uh, they had good discussion at the end of a conversation and teaching on the subject of salvation and whether or not a person can be sure. And Butch came up to him and said at the end of conversation, at the end of class and said, Hey, Mel, you need to teach an entire lesson on the assurance of salvation and whether or not a person can lose their salvation or whether or not they're forever held by God. It turned into an eight-week lesson, okay? Eight weeks they gave themselves. The very first Sunday, the very first week, the very first statement that Mel said he made was to answer the question whether or not a person can lose their salvation. And Mel said... Um, All apologies to the English teachers in the room. But if it wasn't yours to earn, then it ain't yours to lose. And you can be sure that you cannot lose what you did not earn. Because God has done a work for you that you could never do for yourself. So do you have Jesus? That's the question. Are you in right relationship with Him? Because today is a day that does one of two things, either gives you the greatest confidence of assurance in that work or it causes a revelation in your heart so that you would know that you're not in right relationship with God. In just a moment, uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're a guest here today, you should know this about Prestonwood is we practice an open communion and here's what that means that if in fact you are in right relationship with God, if you have been born again, then whether or not you're a member or regular attender of our church, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. It's universal across the New Testament church. And so if you have been born again, if you have been saved, then even if you're not a member of our church or regular attender here, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But if you're not certain as to where you stand with God, if you don't know, whether or not you're saved, then when those elements are distributed and as they pass by, we would ask that you simply pass them on and just observe. And I'll explain to you in just a moment the significance of the juice and of the bread so that you would know what it is that we're celebrating and the reason God gave it to his church as an ordinance for them to experience in worship. And uh, and so I'm gonna ask our deacons uh, to come forward and to begin distributing those elements. The Apostle Paul wrote to the New Testament church in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 and one of the challenges, the admonitions that he gave to the church was that we examine ourselves and so before we partake of the elements but as they're being distributed and you're holding on to them in your chairs, I want to encourage you in that same way. I want to encourage each of you to examine yourself so that we don't defile what is sacred, so that we understand rightly Uh, what it is that God has done for us greatly and the position he has provided us through his life, death, burial, and resurrection eternally. And so examine yourself, ready yourself, and as the worship team sings over us, just pray and ask God to minister and meet you right where you are.